0: A lot of people were thinking, ah, 2020, this is a real um, turning the corner on how people vote. It's kind of the sky's the limit with respect to voting by mail. And what we saw in the eaves was a bounce back to um, not where we were in 2018, but kind of halfway back. And I think that the first thing we want to see and what we can use with the eaves, as opposed to, say, national surveys, is that we can look at what's happening at the county level. Right. So, what I referred to earlier is kind of this thirty thousand foot view. Um, I can, you know, I can tell you how many, what, say, what fraction of people voted by mail um, using a couple of national surveys of voters.
1: You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI, and I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. We are joined today uh, by Charles Stewart of MIT. Uh, he is the Kenan Salin distinguished professor of political science. He's also uh, directs Medsel, a center for election studies out of out of MIT as well as the Caltech MIT voting project. Uh, I will say Charles is the leading scholar in election administration in America. I think that's safe to say. Uh, he's had a history that goes back to uh, working on these matters after the 2000 election, uh, especially with Caltech, uh, with the President's Commission on Election Administration, uh, and more recently with, uh, with with his Medzel Center at MIT. Uh, he's going to talk to us today about the state of election administration broadly, using data to explain where we are. And so, Maybe I could start with just a very, very big question and ask you what does election administration look like, broadly speaking? What are some of the features and highlights that you could show us some data and tell us where we are in the way we run elections? Uh, th- um, thanks. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure
0: to be here um, with you, t- you you two folks who I've known for quite a while. Um, I have, probably have a number of colleagues who would... Um, um, challenge the characterization of the leading um, scholar of election administration but I'll, I'll leave that i'll leave that to the side um, so let's talk about um, election administration um, kind of by the numbers and um, I won't dive too deeply into things and so let's um, just kind of get some things out there um, on on the table i i you know i'd say the most important thing to start with is just the heterogeneity of election administration itself, and that is to say, you know, we're a highly decentralized um, country, Um, just period. Um, compared to the rest of the world, compared to anything. It's highly decentralized. So what does that mean? Um, It means that it's not even the 50 states we have to be concerned about um, when we're studying election administration, but we have to be concerned about the 10,000 local jurisdictions that actually can conduct um, elections in the United States. Okay, so you start with 10,000 jurisdictions, that's 10,000 election administrators. and um, while you know they're constrained by what the state laws are, by their budgets and those sorts of things, it makes getting a sense about election administration in the U.S. a, cha- a challenge, um, and it makes it very hard to make generalizations. Okay, so we start with the ten thousand, um, a hundred thousand polling places. Um, that's a, you know another important thing. So. Um, which means that, you know, about one point 160 million voters in the 2020 election. So that's about 1,600 voters per polling place um, or per precinct. So, you know, you vote very locally. You know, you vote in your neighborhood if you're in a city or suburban area. You vote maybe in your, you know, in, in your town, your village. You know, you're voting with neighbors, and so on the one hand, so this decentralization then um, gets us to, um, you, know, very loca- you know, very local administration, or at least the experience of voters. So that's the big thing. Um, smaller things. Well, you know, um, there's great variation in how we vote. And so the second thing where I um, bring in numbers here is just the modes by which people vote. And um, we've seen a big change of that in recent years, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. Um, but um, there's two, ma- three major ways of voting. We can vote in person on election day, um, old-fashioned, old-fashioned on voting. We can vote by mail. Um, some places called um, absentee voting, some places just called vote by mail nowadays. And then third, we can vote in person, but early. And I'll call that early voting. And um, early voting and voting by mail have been rising. Um, actually almost in a linear fashion since 1996. Um, old-fashioned, um, old-guy voting um, has um, declined also secularly. So that by 2016, let's stop in 2016. In 2016, before the pandemic, you had about 60% of voters voting on Election Day, and you had about, um, you know, the remaining kind of divided in half. So what's about 20% voting by mail voting in person um, and um, and in 2020 that changed dramatically for the first time ever um, voting by mail was the most predominant way of voting about 60% of voters um, voted by mail in that election and about 20% voted um, in person and about 20% voted early roughly um, in rough numbers and we can talk more about what's happened since 2020 but that gives you a sense nationwide the final thing I'll say though if you look state by state those numbers are radically different. You know, you'll have a a state like um, Texas, where even in 2020, with the nation going big time into voting by mail, um, Texas always has, for their their convenience voting method, always emphasized voting early in person, and they remained voting early in person. So you didn't see that big shift in Texas. Um, But you saw a big shift in, um, like Vermont, which had been traditionally, you know, an election day voting state, um, 90% of ballots in, in, 20, um, in 2016 voted in person on election day. And by um, 2020 in that year, something like 80% of votes in Vermont were cast by mail. So again, great heterogeneity, and you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but um, that's kind of the 30,000 foot view.
2: So, Dr. Stewart, um, you know, you talked about sort of the modes of voting and where we were coming up through 2000 to the current situation. Now, have you had a chance to look at the Election Administration Voting Survey? Um, And if so, were there any differences from that data that surprised you or that you plan to research more? Um, I would say... um, um I
0: don't know, I would say surprising, actually to me, but I think surprising to a lot of folks and in, in, in the sense that um, what the um, the EVE survey, the election administration voting survey um, and other surveys have shown um, is that there was a bounce back in voting modes from 2020 to 2022. And um, I think, you know, there were a lot of folks A lot of people were thinking ah 2020 this is a real um um turning the corner on how people vote and um it's kind of the sky's the limit with respect to voting by mail and what we saw in the eaves was um, in fact i think i I mentioned this earlier um a bounce back to um, not where we were in 2018 but kind of halfway back and i think that um, the first thing we want to see, and what we can use with the Eves, as opposed to say national surveys, is that we can look at what's happening at the county level, right? So what I referred to earlier is kind of this 30,000 foot view. Um, I, can, you know, I can tell you how many, what, say what fraction of people voted by mail um, using a couple of national surveys of voters. But what those surveys don't tell me is, well, you know, say within the state of Texas, Is Harris County, you know, what's it like in Harris County versus Tarrant County? And um, so that's the thing where EVE's is particularly valuable. And I've done some work with a colleague of mine at the University of Connecticut, Paul Hernson, where we've been looking at... These county changes and how they relate um, not only um, to kind of the partisanship in these areas, but also to the um, to the demographics in the area. We've done work with how um, say COVID incidents in 2020 um, worked, and so now that COVID has gone away as a concern nationwide, has that then um, you know shifted where people are now um, say moving away from voting by you know voting by mail. Um, so you know the ca- so it's a long way of saying saying the county emphasis in Eves is really um, and um, um, it, it's its value and there's so many other things in the Eves that we can that we can study and that i I and my colleagues um, and my staff at um, the MIT Election Data Data and Science Lab MedSOL will be doing for instance um, for the first time the Eves um, is recording um, how many voters cured their ballots um, afterwards and curing. Um, For folks who don't know what curing is, it's not like they have diseases themselves, Um, but, um, you know, some fraction of voters, um, somewhere between around 5% nationwide, return a mail ballot and there's a deficiency to the ballot somehow and um in 2020 there was the emphasis on giving those voters a chance to cure
1: that's where the term comes from those deficiencies and we and, s- and to be clear this is actually not really on the ballot it's more on the envelope and the eligibility it's hard to have a voter cure the inside of a ballot yes
0: and no exactly right. and, and thanks for that correction yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely so it's on the outside so it might be missing a signature or it might be missing say a date or something like that so um, and so the, and this is actually before they even, you know, the election officials even see what's on the ballot. So we are talking about the the outer, outer envelope. And, um, you know, that's really a it's valuable to have county level data because we can then link, say, the rate of of successful cure to things like, um, say, the capacity of the um, of the jurisdiction to, again, certain demographics of the juris or of the jurisdiction. Um, where the jurisdiction is located in a city versus on the country
1: and things like that. So can I bring you back to sort of painting the big picture of of election administration and uh, take you back to 2000 election, which I think for many of us is where we started to get interested in in these things, especially many in academia. We've changed a lot since then. And you mentioned the changes in voting by mail. That, that probably preceded that. It was sort of a slow trend that wasn't directly affected by that. But we, we had a lot of changes. and you, you did a lot of work on all sorts of matters, including you know, ballots uh, that, that were thrown out and lost because of mistakes on ballots or, or overcounts, undercounts. Um, we changed things after 2000. So, so paint a little picture of how different it looks today from the 2000 election with, with some data. A couple of ways
0: to see that first of all the the big change that um you know election officials have lived through over the last 20 years and voters have kind of come along with it is the use of voting technology Um, in fact the first thing i got involved with in this area was the caltech mit voting technology project and you know back in 2020 you know the 2020 election the controversy around that um in florida (laughs) um had to do with an antiquated technology um punch cards um that were used there and there were some problems with those punch cards um it was, 2000. was 2000 2000 2000 election, election, not 2020, <laughs> 2020 uh, you yeah, know yeah. I, I apologize i do that also, all the time uh, thanks for the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah the 2000 election lots of lots of punch cards but also the mechanical lever machines these big two-ton beasts that people would vote on in fact it's the first thing that i voted on in orange county florida when um, when i turned 18 and um, a majority of voters in America voted on either punch cards or mechanical lever machines in 2000, got the date right. Um, and, um, and by now, um, well, the Help America Vote Act, which was passed in 2003, outlawed the use of those two technologies in federal elections. Um, so that by around 2010, they had, to, they had to pry the mechanical machines out of the New Yorker's dying hands. Um, but eventually, um, that dragon was slayed. And so those two technologies have gone away. The other thing with, you know, with respect to technology is that at that time, there was a growing reliance on um, what's called direct recording electronic devices. We can think about those as voting on ATMs, um, basically. Um, which had no paper backup, largely. And um, that was a growing youth technology. Money that was made available through the Help America Vote Act went to the local jurisdictions to upgrade them, their, their equipment. And they oftentimes, um, you know, bought a lot of these new DREs without paper backup. And they probably lived to regret that decision. Um, but nonetheless, that by about 2008... Something like um, um, something like a third to forty percent of voters were now voting on these um, DREs, um, which um, you know had no backup. In the case they you know they failed, and there was a controversy around that. And so now you know, um, fast forwarding to twenty twenty, um, we don't have um, you know punch cards. We don't have lever machines, and we pretty much have gotten rid of the paperless voting machines. Um, In the last couple of elections, and especially if we keep in mind that um, voting by mail, you're voting on paper, Um, something uh, north of 90% 90 of all Americans now, 90
1: to 95% are voting on paper. And so, so basically, the the average person in some way fills out a ballot, and that ballot is scanned by a machine. So the voting technology is a as a kind of scanner of the paper ballots for the most part. For the most part, um, the there, there's
0: um, there's a little bit of controversy in there because I, I'd say um, let's say about a quarter of those um, of those paper ballots are prepared by a device called a ballot marking device, where you use a video. Touchscreen to um, sele- make make a selections and um, and on the podcast people can't see me punching in the air in front of me, but after you've made the selection, then it prints out a ballot that you can look at, verify that those are the selections you actually made, and then they are scanned. So one way or the other, either you have the ballot marking device or you have your own um, hand mark a, a paper ballot, but those then go in um, to be scanned. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: So, Dr. Stewart, it's funny you, you mentioned the uh, the lever machines. Uh, they were still in play. When I actually visited New York in some non-federal elections. It's very interesting. Um, and it, it's interesting because I, I actually heard from an election official that uh, the two votes against the Help America Vote Act were uh, Senator Clinton and Schumer at the time. And mm-hmm. it was because of that fact that they would have to pry those... Uh, those lever machines from their dying hands. <laughs> so they were very persistent, but uh, they eventually uh, the, the bill was passed, and obviously um, the lever machines are history. Um, just shifting a bit, um, you've done a lot of research, and I've listened to you talk about confidence or the varying levels of confidence over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you 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 record that through surveys that you do. Um, you know, so s- surveys have shown a lack of confidence in elections, different parts. You know different elections different groups what is your data show um and should election officials be worried there seems to be you know maybe it's because i'm more concerned at it the election assistance commission but there seems to be persistent lack of confidence um by the public and um you know we have another presidential election coming up how are you viewing the level of confidence and um and what does the data show
0: Right. Um, yeah, I have all sorts of opinions about voter confidence, but let's, let's, let's focus on the, on the data um, there. Um, well, you know, um, if we look at the confidence measure, so let's talk a little, little bit about how we measure this. There is a question that's been asked regularly since the 2000 election, um, where you ask respondents on a survey, how confident are you that your vote was counted as you intended. And as you can, remembering the controversy in Florida, that was kind of where that controversy was. So that question continues to be asked on a regular basis by surveys that I do. The survey of the, of the performance of American elections after each federal election, we ask that. And there's a number of other academic and um, commercial surveys that regularly ask that question. And then there's analog questions where we, we can ask people, how confident are you that um, votes in your city, in your state, were counted as intended in the nationwide. And you can ask that question in a variety of ways. Um, you don't have to focus on, say, whether your vote was counted. You can ask, um, was the election fair? And all sorts of ways of, of asking the question, but it's basically the same, the same answer. So what do we know? Um, well, first of all, and, and this comes as a surprise to a lot of people, but now looking at the 22 years in which been, we've been asking the question, the Um, confidence at, well, here's one thing that wouldn't surprise people, and I think it's very important. When we ask people about their their own vote, in the 2020 election, for instance, 90% of all respondents said that they were confident, either very or somewhat, they were confident that their vote was counted as intended. So people are very confident about what they, can, you know, what they can observe themselves, what they hear from friends and neighbors, very confident. Um, at the same time, in 2020, only about half of Americans said that they were confident that votes nationwide were counted as intended. Okay, so, and then when you ask about the, you know, your city and the state, the numbers are in the middle, okay? So the further away from you the referent gets, the less confident you are. So that's thing number 1 and that's happen I mean, that's true everywhere every time we run the survey. Then there's across time. So is is confidence declining? And it turns out over the last 22 years it's only sagging a bit, which is, you know, not good, but it's 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 only sagging a bit. What's really changing is the partisan variability. Um, and it's actually changing in unusual ways. Um, again, it's a bit counterintuitive encounter to what's in the news by by which I mean um, we first of all have a winner and loser effect I oftentimes quip to local officials this used to be a joke it's kind of painful to tell it this way nowadays they say there's two ways you can make people happy Uh, make sure they have a good experience make sure their guy wins right (laughs) and you can see how we can't joke that way anymore but basically you know this is winner and loser effect and if your guy wins you're very confident if your guy loses you're very not confident um and that winner loser effect has has gotten a bit larger over time so that nationwide the numbers are kind of flat but um when um but given the outcomes of elections they swing more now ironically and interestingly um, we see that in 2020, Republican voters nationwide became less confident that um, votes in that election were counted properly. But also Democrats became way more confident. In fact, I, I, sometimes I say the Democrats have become irrationally exuberant about, um, <laughs> about um, vote counting. Because And so that gap, right, you can get a gap, a partisan gap, for two reasons at least, and um, now we're seeing, you know, and we'll see how long this this lasts, but the current partisan environment is causing these really great swings. And so, um, you know, we see Republicans in the last election or two getting a whole lot less confident, um, but we also see Democrats getting a whole much more confident. And I think that actually also has consequences for election administration and what's happening in the states as well. Um, And um, I I can, you know, other numbers that we can talk about there. um, But um, again, um, the last thing I'll say, and maybe to put a serious spin on this kind of quasi joke I told earlier, that when I talk to election officials about confidence in election administration, um, my point, the point I make to them is that you can't control the partisan environment. And so, don't try to control the partisan environment. You can control how the election is run. And from the research we do in public opinion, we know that that's a very very powerful thing. And maybe you can't increase confidence because of election administration, but if there is a screw up, it's going to be a big hit to voter confidence. Now you can't control everything about the administration of an election. Um, but you can control a lot of it. So focus on running a good election. And that's probably the best thing you can do for election administration and maybe for your mental health as well.
1: So let me, again, take you back to to 2000 uh, and and maybe paint a picture of where we are on voter registration. Uh, One fact, you could correct me if I'm wrong, is that back in 2000, before we passed the Help America Vote Act, uh, there were only seven states that had a Computerized statewide registration database, meaning that our registration was even more decentralized than, than 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 it is today. It was often at the county level, often on paper. Um, we, we required that that change after with the Help of America Vote Act, but but things have changed in that realm. Things have also changed in, in the way that people register and uh, where where they get registered. So so paint a picture of the changes and also what it looks like today uh, about voter registration.
0: Well, um, a couple of things, as, John. As you mentioned, it's now much more—it's much more centralized, or and or powered by technology, right? Um, and as you mentioned, the Help, you know, the Help America Vote Act um, required that states have computerized voter registration systems. Now, HAVA also allowed states to decide whether they wanted to be so-called top-down or bottom-up systems. Um, Top-down, I mean, that's sort of what they sound like. Top-down means basically a centralized, run-by-the-state um, system. North Carolina is a great example of this. Um, or bottom-up, where the counties kind of do their own thing, but there's a way in which the data from the counties gets pumped up to the state on a regular basis, right? And um, Ohio may be the—Ohio, um, Wisconsin may be the, kind of the, the poster children for that, that way of going. Um, so— Top-down, bottom-up hasn't changed, but certainly technology. Everyone has a computer now. The states are responsible for a centralized system. As an aside, a lot of those systems are beginning, (laughs) 20-year-old systems are beginning to be redone now, which is a huge um, expenditure of funds at the state level. Um, So that's thing number one. Now, uh, So everyone now has a computerized system um, because of HABA. Um, The other thing is in 2000, paper was the primary way in which registration happened either you would go in this is i think actually how i have always personally registered by either going in and filling out a form or filling out a form and mailing it in which then required somebody that you hope was a very good typist with very thin thumbs uh would type in all the information accurately at the time in 2000, there were a couple of states moving into integrating state-level databases with voter registration. Early ones in that decade, a decade of the aughts, were Michigan and Delaware, um, and you know that that was the beginning of um, you know, in some cases, what's called automatic voter registration. In other cases, just called you know, it's really a more high-tech version of motor voter. And so now, what we see from Eves is that most new registrations are coming in through um, some version of motor voter slash automatic voter registration, um, or online registrations. You know, something involving a computer, something that interacts with the DMV or maybe social services, where they already have information about you, and they may even already have information about your citizenship status. Um, and so, um, which is great, it, which is great. It now um, saves money, and it diminishes the possibility of errors. Um, it, I believe the numbers um, don't hold me to this, but now it's close to around forty states or so. Have a little some, bit higher than that. A little yes. bit higher than that. But it's you know it's coming to be almost universal to have some version of online motor registration, or at least being able to. I mean, you, and even if you can't register online. You can, um, you can change um, if you move, um, want to change your party affiliation, change your name, those sorts of things. You can do that online, and that's a much more um, cost-effective and much
2: more um, accurate way of doing things. Dr. Stewart, um, just going back a little bit on voter confidence, you know, um, talking about election results and election night reporting, I mean, there's a security side of that. But You've advised some networks on sort of the reporting of election night results and calling races. And we often talk about unofficial results, um, and that's sort of an educational thing we do for the public and the importance of patience. But I'm skeptical. I'm not really seeing a lot of patience with the public um, and, and not sure education is going solve to that, solve that dilemma. How serious is delay to public confidence? And should we collectively tabulate and report results more timely? Yeah, that's so. In, in the interest
0: of um, full disclosure, I'm on the CBS decision team, as you as you mentioned. I'm working with with the networks, and the first thing I will say, by the way, is that you notice I, um, I I should have put in quotes "decision team" because at CBS now um, we're called the Data Desk, hmm. and the um, and the and the slogan on on, um, on election night was "America decides, we report." Um, And so the networks are beginning to understand this really important rhetorical um, device or, or point is that the votes are the votes and they are what decide the election. The networks report what we know about the votes, but the decision is made when the canvas happens and the results become official. So that bit of rhetoric is changing. Now with respect to speed, and um and confidence um, um i think i'm i don't know if, the, if i'm in in print as, <laughs> as as being skeptical about the claim but i don't see in my so i've written a, a report about the 2020 election i um, taking a very close look at the um at the pattern of vote um returns in 2020 and i have a report coming out soon Um, That will be about the 2022 election. And um, one of the things is to note that in 2020, um, reporting actually was pretty fast. Even in, you know, in a state like Georgia that was very controversial about, you know, eventually kind of calling it several days after Election Day, by midnight in Georgia, something like 98% of all the votes have been counted. Um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, it was slower, but still. By Wednesday morning, we were in the nineties. Ninety percent reported, and so one of the things that kind of keep in, and I like to ask people to keep in mind, is that, um, is that you know, for sometimes if the election is close, yes, if it's, it's close, it's not going to matter how fast you report it, right. Um, and so you just got to keep that in mind. You know, Florida now, you know, think back to 2018. Florida, 2018 was really close to a couple of elections. By midnight, I would bet you they had 99% of the votes votes sure. in. Right. Um, and there was still, you know, a lot of. So, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, I like to ask people, so which state took the longest to count in 2020? Do you know? Probably, if I had to guess, California, Alaska, Alaska, really? Alaska, um, and um, so you know, but nobody cared Alaska, right? Um, or at least nationally, Alaskans certainly care, and I don't want to get email about that. Um, but for the presidential race, that you know, we knew where Alaska was going. Um, having said all that, I know we all know that the issue of vote counting is um, is one that gets caught up in the, these trust narratives. And some other work that I've done, looking at the data, is um, has convinced me that um, if one of the reasons for kind of the long count, if you will, is because you have, a, if you're waiting for those final votes to come in um, by mail. You know, let's say you allow mail ballots to, um, be included in the in the count if they arrive, say, a couple of days after election day. Although they're, um, um, they have a postmark from election day. That's a tiny number. That's a tiny number of ballots. And there's some evidence that actually having a post-election day deadline for the receipt of mail ballots doesn't lead to fewer ballots being rejected for arriving later. Um, and so. I've, I've begun to wonder the value about allowing mail ballots to come in after Election Day. So there may be good reasons and very little costs for requiring mail ballots to come in by Election Day and then, and then, and then um, um, twin that up with allowing jurisdictions to begin to do the sort of um, processing of mail ballots ahead of time you know, to verify the signatures and to get them ready even for tabulation on Election Day so you can get those ballots counted on Election Day, that's probably a good thing. Um, And it probably would not affect many voters, really. And it would take away um, from people who want to cast doubt on the election, doubt due to this kind of delay of reporting. Um, so I understand why some people want you know late ballots to come in late, but we do have to ask. We do have to ask at what cost, rhetorically. Um, and um, the real issue is
2: that it's close, not necessarily. But
0: but nonetheless, if it's close, yes. it's going to be close, and you, you're going to have to go through recounts and and all those sorts of things That's as right. well. Exactly. That's
2: right.
1: So uh, one other issue I want you to talk about is one that we've all all worked on some some of it together. Uh, and if you remember the. Uh, 2012 election, there was some concern about lines at polling places. There have been concerns in other elections, but that was a, that was an issue that people brought up. And, and the, the president at the time, President Obama, appointed a commission. It was, it was supposed to look into a lot of things, but that was kind of the impetus for it. Um, and we all had some role in that president's commission. Uh, and afterwards, did some real work on you know, trying to collect data online, which was hard to do, and looking at that. So, so what would you tell the world that the data says about aligns lines, what we know, and, and, and what, what's more, more broadly the voter experience at the polling place. Right. Well, both of y'all have seen me give,
0: me, give the full hour version of yeah. this um, response, and so I won't give the full hour version of this, of this response. But a couple of things that we know to focus on the data. Um, the, the thing number one, just to talk about how long people wait. And um, the President's Commission on Election Administration, which you, which you mentioned, came out with a benchmark in their 2013-2014 report um, about um, a benchmark that said that nobody should have to wait more than 30 minutes to vote. And if we look from 2012 to 2016, the percentage of people who waited longer than 30 minutes just collapsed. Um, and looking at early voting, which is where the longest lines are, it went from something like 21% of voters waiting more than 30 minutes to vote early in 2012 down to less than 10% in 2016. That number went back up to over 20% in 2020. Um, The um, wait times for in-person voting also went down a bit in 2012 and went back up not in 2020, not to 2012 levels, but getting close. So in 2020, we returned back to kind of 2012 number levels. Now, there was a lot going on in 2020. <laughs> and so, you know, um, and it's, but, but this is one of the things that I'm encouraging election officials to pay attention to in moving into 2024 is that I think they could possibly have a line problem, and there's ways of dealing with that. So then this gets to the question, what do you do? And um, there are methods for... Um, You know, there is a well-known theory about how lines occur called Little's Law, and that gets into the half hour (laughs) lecture on this. And I won't go into the details, but it turns out that line lengths are very predictable if you know just a couple of things. One, how long, say, it takes to check somebody in, how quickly that is what, what the arrival rate for voters is. If you know, and then how many places do you have to check them in? One, one poll book, two poll books, et cetera. Those three things, and you can predict how long your lines are going to be. And in fact, I won't name the state, but um, just last week I was talking with a state that is rolling out an early voting program, and they were using a tool that I have available on my website to kind of crunch those numbers and make sure they have enough poll books so that when they roll out this new early voting program, their lines won't be all that long. And so this is kind of the, you know, self-promotion here for um, local officials, especially um, who want to now, we're kind of returning to a sort of normalcy, that you want to make sure that you have, you know, enough resources in your polling places. Um, there are tools on the MedSol website and the Voting Technology website to help doing it. And I'm always happy to talk to local officials about how to use those tools.
1: So we're getting to the end of our podcast where we always ask two questions. I'll, I'll ask the first and I'll let Don ask the, uh, the the final one. Um, and they're they're more personal about your experience in getting into elections and, and just... Uh, since I know you, one thing I will say about you is that uh, there are political scientists out there who think, Charles Stewart, he's an expert on Congress, which he is in many ways, uh, but he's also now an expert in, in this, and, and that is that has come about maybe a little bit later. So the question really is, so tell us how you got into elections or election administration, and then what's the biggest mi- misconception that... The pre-election Charles Stewart didn't had about elections. What would you tell your former self uh, about elections that you didn't know then? That's that's important, right? And on the first point, by the way, I should—I still do Congress
0: stuff. In yeah. fact, I wrote the—I wrote a six hundred-page book about speakership elections, and I'm right now <laughs> applying that book with a colleague, I'm Jeff Jenkins, to um, um, Kevin McCarthy's um, um, recent experience. So I, I'm, I still am in that area, but but um, in an election in, in election world, how I got here really quickly was the the 2000 election and the Voting Technology Project, and um, and and all of that and as you mentioned earlier, the, um, um, the, the president's commission. And so, um, and I could go on long hours about how that's gotten me into this new world. I'd say the one thing that now Charles would tell young Charles, and it's something actually I've, 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 um, rolled into a lot of talks I do, um, with say state legislators and, um, and, and the public in general, and that is that I think most of the public and most political scientists, even many of them who study elections, kind of view election administration as like really easy to do. Like, how hard could it be? And so I talk about how hard could it beism, <laughs> because I think a lot of state legislators are affected by it. how hard could it beism. A lot of activists on both the left and the right are infected by that. And so running elections is really hard. (laughs) It's detail-oriented to a degree that normal human beings can't understand until they get close to it. I've seen behind the veil a little bit. Um, And so just, you know, understand (laughs) that human beings who have a lot on their plate are under-resourced, have a lot of laws that they have to follow, are running this. And in many places, you know, the the, the typical election official is doing a lot of other things because they're a city clerk and they're doing a lot of other things related to being what a city clerk does, and they might have one other person on staff permanently. Um, so that's that's the thing. It's, it's a hard job, and um, it's hard to do, and then, therefore... <laughs> Um, You know, when you make a recommendation about election administration, if you want it to be taken seriously, you have to address that um, fact. Even if you want to push election administrators in a new direction, you have to acknowledge how hard it's going to be to do anything new, even if they want to do it.
2: On a lighter note, um, you have been involved since 2000. Tell us a funny or unusual story about elections. You've met a lot of election administrators. You probably observed some elections. What's the funniest or most unusual story? I don't know if it's—it
0: might be the funniest or un, most in, unusual. This is a Boston story, and it's the one that f- comes to mind first. And um, I was actually back when we were trying to develop this um, this kind of coding sheet for measuring how long it took voters to do various things in in um, polling places. Um, I was there with a colleague, Steve Graves, who's a business professor, just retired. And we were basically, you know, how do you do a coding sheet for time and motion studies for, for, for voting? We were in a precinct in Boston. It was the preliminary election for the city election, so it was an odd, odd-numbered year. And there was, um, um, it was in, um, in East Boston. There was a, a woman who comes in to vote and she looks at the ballot, and she goes to the poll worker, and says, um, um, "I want to vote for the Democrats. Which are the Democrats?" And the poll worker says, I, "I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know, you know, um, you have to make that decision on your own." She goes back to the polling booth, comes back 30 minutes, 30 seconds later. "Who are the Democrats? I want to vote for the Democrats." And she says, "I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I'm not allowed to tell you who to vote for." You know, and so she goes back to the voting booth. Another 30 seconds later, she does the same question. And finally, the poll worker says, this is Boston.
1: They're all Democrats.
0: <laughs> 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 Which probably wasn't a legal thing to do, but it was also true in that, in that case. Um, and um, got, at least got the official through the day, and I don't know what happened to the voter.
1: Charles Stewart, thanks for joining us in the voting booth. Thank you, Charles. Thanks. It was great fun. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by jae Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.